0: Listening to the one two three show with me, Noreen Mair, this Wednesday afternoon. Let's turn to our very first guest of today. Now, in the next twenty minutes or so, we're chatting with UK best-selling author Natasha Pulley about the creative writing and also importance of writing beyond your own gender and race. Natasha is here as part of the British Council's invitation, and uh, she will be at this year's Hong Kong Book Fair, which opens today. And uh, we are on Facebook Live as well, so you'll be able to see. And hear Natasha there as well. And what's more is you can meet Natasha tonight as well at uh, the book fair. Uh, She'll be doing a a public speaking session today at seven o'clock, followed by a book signing at 8.15. And she's very busy. She'll be at uh, HKU's uh, main library and she'll be uh, doing a creative writing session sharing there at 6 30 as well welcome to the program thank you so much for being with us this afternoon natasha
1: thank you my pleasure
0: it's a pleasure to have you here so first of all let's talk a little bit about your books now your debut novel the watchmaker of philgree street became the international best-selling um, and also featured in the best books list of amazon Buzzfeed, goodreads huffington post the guardian and also your second book The Bedlam Stacks which I think you have long as well but please hold it up for our Facebook live audience was also described as epic by the New York Times. Let's begin with your second book The Bedlam Stacks. Can you tell us what is it about?
1: Sure it's about a Victorian English expedition um, funded by what was then the India office which is now our foreign office Um, they were funded to go out to Peru and steal some stuff called quinine which was at the time the only known treatment for malaria which was this huge problem because the British government being the British government owned India so this was a massive thing they didn't want to buy it they they didn't want to buy it it. they wanted to steal it and because so quinine only grew at this time in this very remote region of Peru and Bolivia in the very kind of most difficult to reach part of the amazon jungle now today it, it grows all over the place we've got massive plantations of it in south africa because it's the stuff that goes in like tonic for and tonic oh really yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah of course fever tree is.
0: yes
1: a fever tree is a quinine tree it's a, a the technical name is a cinchona tree but nobody calls it that and it's this kind of medicinal bark that was used to treat malaria and lower fevers um and so of course, because it was so rare, the Peruvian government had this amazing monopoly on it. So yeah, they really sold it for an arm and a leg. And the British government were like, no, we're not going to do that. We'll we're find another way. just going to nick it, yeah.
0: <laughs> so this book is set in 1859. That's right. In Peru. Now, yes. how did this idea come to you then?
1: Okay, it fell right into my lap. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um, but people like to call this inspiration, it is actually stealing so there was this was a real expedition (laughs) you're laughing this this was a real expedition um It genuinely went out in 1859 Um, and the way that it fell into my lap was that one of the men on the expedition was this guy called Clements Markham and he later became famous because he was the guy who sent um, Scott out to the Antarctic so he kind of ran the Royal Geographic Society by the time that Scott was going but at this point in 1859 Clements Markham was only 30 so the age that I am now um, and he was a specialist in Peruvian anthropology and archaeology So he was the go-to guy for anything to do with Peru, as far as the the India office were concerned. So they asked him to go out, and when he went out, he wrote this very long, very detailed monograph about everything that he experienced while he was there. This came to me because I used to have the most boring job known to mankind. I used to write blurbs for reprints of Victorian monographs for Cambridge University Press. (laughs)
0: And this arrived in and lab- this arrived
1: on my desk, this monograph, and it was incredibly dull. It is the most boring account of an expedition I have ever read because Markham wrote it for the Royal Geographic Society. So he focuses on, you know, kind of species of tree, different geological bits and bobs, kind of the mountains, things like that. The really interesting stuff is in the footnotes. He mentions once that they meet a man called Martel who followed them and threatened to cut their feet off if they touched a Chinchona tree. Footnote. <laughs> also a footnote my nose is bleeding hugely from altitude sickness. So they're moving through the Andes at sort of 20,000 feet. They're incredibly altitude sick. And this goes in a footnote. He barely describes the human experience of it at all. And that was something that I was really interested in. So you had
0: all of that as a sort of backstory, as an inspiration, and then you added your own sort of imagination of what it'd be like to be living there at that time. Yes. How did you do your research then?
1: So, firstly, I did some more stealing, like blatant (laughs) theft, Peruvian fairy tales. Peruvian fairy tales are absolutely amazing. One One of the focuses of this book... Um, is the idea that um, people can turn to stone. And this is not something that I came up with, nor did I steal it from Doctor Who, for people who watch Doctor Who. Um, This is a Peruvian fairy tale, and particularly um, old kind of pre-Christian saints, so indigenous saints or uh, holy people, often were considered to have turned to stone in order to better watch over the people who they left behind. So there's this notion of stone saints that kind of proliferates Peruvian fairy tales so nick that and i nicked everything else as well so indigenous religion um local ways of, of thinking about time. That was one thing that I found really interesting. You,
0: you say it with such ease, but, you know, it's a lot of digesting. You had to actually do the research and then make it sort of semi-relatable for people who are so unfamiliar sure. with So
1: I think the first, Yeah, so the, the first round of all of this research is always kind of bury yourself up to the eyebrows in journal articles, in non-fiction books, like make sure that you know what the kind of the scholarly discourse around this is, so that you don't make some horrific error and you end up thinking that Peru is in Indonesia or something ridiculous <laughs> so like th- th- these are basic things make sure you get your basic facts right and everything else will sort itself out so and what I think something that's really important to remember with any kind of writing but particularly when you write fiction that's kind of out of your sphere of experience is that you will have to know 10 times more than actually gets on the page so you need to make yourself as much of an expert as you possibly can. So I did I did all the reading and then I wrote the book and that was, that was fine, but then I went to Peru. I went out on a lovely grant from this uh, place called the Society of Authors, which is based in London. They, they gave me um, lots of money to go out and live there. And I lived there for three months and I learned Spanish in Lima and then I went traveling through Peru by myself and I did part of the expedition route um, that the characters in the Bedlam Stacks do. And that wasn't out of some kind of, well, maybe it was, some awful pretentious urge to say, darlings, yes, I've been I to Peru, did. I know it terribly well, you know, like that wasn't what it was supposed to be. It does yeah. add
0: some, a lot of street cred, though.
1: Right, street cred, exactly. <laughs> but one of the things that I knew that I hadn't written properly was how it feels to get altitude sick. And that was really important in the book because I wanted to use it as a plot point because it's such a fascinating uh, illness, it's this weird thing. But I didn't understand how extreme it was until I went there and I was flat out on the floor on an oxygen canister. It was mad. So technically nobody can predict who will get altitude sickness and who won't, but I was born and bred in the English fens. So just to give you some reference, that is below sea level. My blood is not, not made equipped for, for the Peruvian mountains at all. Like, oxygen does not reach my brain if I stand on a molehill, never mind in the Andes. Um, so this is really, like, it's, it's a strange thing. So if I went, I, I lived in Lima, but I flew to Cusco. And a, a Cusco is a, uh, it's at about 10,000 feet above sea level. And this, this is significant. Even if you're used to, to that to altitude, you'll still feel it in Cusco because it's very, very high within about four hours i couldn't think anymore i was functionally fluent in spanish by the time i went after four hours i could barely speak english wow like your, but the whole front of your brain just shuts down and that was both unpleasant but hugely valuable because what i hadn't realized was that it's not just going to affect kind of you know feeling sick as you walk over the andes it's going to affect every decision that you make and it also, I didn't know this at all, it wasn't on any website that I read about, it also gives you insane panic attacks. If you start, um, if, if you're at altitude, basically 10,000 feet up, your brain isn't getting enough oxygen. And so what it feels like is like you're drowning but without the water. Wow. It's a really, really strange feeling. And I, I started getting quite anxious after an hour. And then after three hours, I was starting to panic about nothing. Because I was fine. I was in a hotel. It's not like I was slumming it or anything. I wasn't in a tent in the forest. Like, I'm not that kind of traveller. I need electricity and Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was such a peculiar feeling. And as soon as that happened to me, I was like, this changes the book. It needs to go in much, much more. It's just, its not just this sort of thing that happens to them on the edges of everything. It's its going to affect every, everything that they think, every decision that happens
0: and when you went back home how did you change the book and were there major changes that you made based on your trip
1: there were major changes absolutely um at, so that that was the huge one that that changed about that changed the entire middle third of the book i think so it was yeah it was it was quite funny cause I i couldn't write while i was there because i was altitude stupid So I could barely, I couldn't spell. (laughs) So I I didn't know what was going on. Um, But when I got back to Lima, I was kind of, I was holed up in a cafe for about a week afterwards, just changing everything with my editor on the phone going, where is the manuscript?
0: Because you were on the deadline. I was right? on a
1: deadline and I was yeah. late. But I was like, no, it's it's going to change or this will be rubbish.
0: But I think it actually takes even more, a lot of guts for authors to go back to revise their work as well. Because a lot of the times when they're on the deadline, they send it and, you know, just let it pass. But you didn't. You were, you chose to be authentic uh, with your experiences and you changed the book.
1: And I, I think you do have to do that. Yes, I think 90% of writing is editing. 90% of it is being willing to go back and say yeah I got that really wrong first time round. I mean if you if you look at writers first drafts they're a mess. They're so bad. I mean even Shakespeare like there's this myth that Shakespeare wrote perfectly first time round. Have you seen a Shakespeare manuscript? It is horrible. The man had spider writing and he's just it's like an inky, smudgy mess where he crosses everything out and moves it around. but that's what everyone's manuscripts look like yeah.
0: let's talk about your journey to being an author. Was it something that you sort of fell into eventually um from your boring job of looking at
1: <laughs> no, I think it w- it was something that I always did, but it wasn't something that I always realized you could do for a living and i think so i grew up I, I know i sound like disgustingly posh but i grew up um, in quite a working class place um my my mum worked in a school and my my dad was unemployed for a long time and it didn't like it no one had ever said to me that the, the there existed arts jobs do you know what i mean yeah and it's it's kind of very it's difficult to open kids eyes to that when there's kind of nothing around them to suggest that it's possible and We had a really good English teacher at my secondary school and he did bring in writers, but they were just this kind of this other species. It never even occurred to me to ask how they got to where they were because I just assumed it would be not for people like me. Um, But I always wrote. I wrote since being really, really little. I remember my mum used to have a laptop that was enormous it looked like a breeze block it was like this huge thing so I, I don't know how i stole it but i must have been very efficient about it aged seven um but i did and i started I typing away. yeah i was typing away and i learned to type on this brick and i used to write i have a really clear memory of it i used to write star trek fan fiction Age seven. Yeah. We were such geeks in my house. We used to obsessively watch Star Trek. So I started with sci-fi and then started making this like insanely complicated fantasy universe that made no sense to anybody but me. And I kept going and going and going. And I think this is the thing. It's it's the same as drawing. You get good at it if you just never stop. Yes. And I think loads of people do this when they're kids, but they, they get distracted. They do other stuff. They they lend their time to something that they think will be more worthwhile don't do that people yeah, stick that, with the writing stick with the drawing yeah,
0: and sometimes parents do that as well you know they they deter their children you know oh you, you won't really get a make a living with these sort of jobs you need to find a proper job and then these really talented writers bury their talent it's not until sort of in their later life that they discover it but you kept at it exactly
1: and I think it's it's also a huge myth that you you get one Mozart per generation. You don't. How many wasted Mozarts are there? How many people were there who could have done that but were put off for whatever reason? So, you know, maybe you're not Mozart yet, but you can get there
0: and you can learn. And you're an educator as well, Natasha. You also teach creative writing um, as well. Is it something that you can teach or is it something that you're born creative and some people are just naturally more observant, better writers and more creative than others? I mean, what do you make of it? So
1: people who say that second thing should be slapped in the face with a wet fish. Um, That's really important to me. And then promptly defenestrated it's so damaging to imagine that it's it's this kind of amazing thing that you can either do or not do. Do not believe in the artiste. Please don't. It's a terrible idea. Writing is a craft. It's exactly like carpentry. And if you can learn to bolt together a kitchen table, you can learn to bolt together a novel. They are very much the same shape. Um, and are you often hear writers talking about novels having shapes. And it, it sounds ridiculous, but they do. And you get to a point with writing a novel where you go oh there's a weird lump there i need to like, bash it back into shape again and it and i say bash uh in in full awareness of how blunt that connotation is it's it looks like it's going to be a kind of a, a terribly involved and refined process it's not it's like hammering and smashing and cutting bits off um and it's just eminently teachable eminently teachable. You can teach people to write beautiful sentences. That's easy because it's just about not using adverbs. (laughs) But (laughs) you can also teach people how to build the shape of a plot, how to build the shape of a character. This is all... This is all there, and there are people who can show you how to do this.
0: Yeah, it's just, you know, such a gift, though. You know, when you read a really good novel, you think, wow, this person imagined this idea, able to write in a language that makes people relate. But you're saying that it's a craft and that most people can learn it.
1: It's a craft, 100%. Yeah.
0: Let's share your journey uh, to to writing professionally then. I mean, was it a scary leap uh, to to do it? Because it's it's a tough industry, you know, and, and people often glamorize authors and be like, oh, you're a best selling author. But actually, there's a lot of hard work that goes behind it. You know, it's about meeting the right publisher. It's about knowing, you know, who to send your scripts to. I mean, what was your own journey like? So you have to be very good and
1: very lucky in equal measure they're very much 50 50 those things my journey um makes me sound like a twit so so having told you like very very clearly and carefully that like, i came from quite a working class background i've then disqualified my, myself from being working class because i then went to oxford university (laughs) to do english literature so that's three years learning how to read properly and that sounds kind of really stupid but there are ways and ways of reading and when you read well that's when you start writing well like when you start saying oh this is how they're building tension in this particular point oh that's rather clever isn't it clever that there's a boiler in the shining that just ticks and ticks and ticks and it works like a clock the more clocks you get in a in a story usually the more tense it is it's really a really good device when you start noticing stuff like that then you'll write well so three years learning to read then i threw all of my eggs in one probably very ill-advised basket, basket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i um i did a, a creative writing degree at the university of east anglia um which is um it's supposed to be the best in the uk oxford and cambridge well cambridge now does now run a creative writing course but University of East Anglia is the place to go um, and I didn't know this when I applied I applied because it was near my house <laughs> yeah um Very little, practical. Yes, yes exactly I was like I can't leave my mum for too much longer she freaked out when I went to Oxford she freaked out when I went to live in China I better stay close <laughs> um, only after I got in did I realize they had this kind of huge network of agents and publishers who they who they brought in quite regularly once I was there, I went very religiously to all the agent meetings and publisher meetings. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, an agent is the person who kind of takes you on as a writer and a person. They then sell your manuscripts to publishers. It's like an auction and the, the agent is the auctioneer. So first you need an auctioneer on your side. So that that's kind of how this works. And I met my agent in the first three months, when I was when I was doing my master's course, she came to talk to some undergraduates, and I just snuck in at the back. and And the undergraduates were there to practice pitching, and they were all very sweet. and I kind of elbowed past them and went, "Me! I have a historical novel that you definitely want." And she went, "Oh, okay." <laughs>
0: That's why you said it's uh, talent, uh, skill, and also luck in equal and measure. Also luck, exactly. At, at the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, for for a lot of people, they they start writing, but a lot of it is also getting good feedback. Yes. Uh, where would you suggest you know writers to get feedback? Are are, are there available options online or writer circle in, in the community that that you perhaps reached out for? Yes, definitely.
1: Um, one piece of advice I would give you is don't show your writing at first to immediate family members because it will crush you if they hate it whereas if you show it to a stranger and they hate it you care a lot less so i don't let my mum read my manuscripts even now until they've already been printed
0: until the final Uh, until the
1: final proof comes through like what will actually be published is like she she really resents it that i won't let her read my drafts but they change too much and she's my mum she's like the highest authority there's there's like my e- my agent, my editor, the New Yorker, the rest of my- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So don't don't rely on immediate family to begin with because it will crush your soul. What you can do is get online and there are lots and lots of big writing forums. But what you want is one that's designed to encourage people to give feedback. Um there's quite a good one called youWriteOn.com. And it runs a sort of point system wherein for every review you give, you earn the right to be reviewed once. So the more you review, the more you are reviewed. So it's a very clever online workshop. That's all free. And the people who get into the top, I think the top 10 rankings get an immediate uh, meeting with a Bloomsbury editor. So that's definitely worth doing. And it's really good practice, even if you're not quite at the point where you want an editor to see your work. It's, It's good to get very ardent feedback.
0: The other side of the coin is, you know, the other side of it is uh, getting feedback, but also receiving feedback. I mean, how much should you take on the feedback without changing your story completely? And also not to take it so personally, because sometimes it really isn't about you as a person. It's just maybe the writing, you know, needs to be improved. So how should one take on feedback? I mean,
1: Feedback is always going to be difficult because having somebody criticise your novel is very much like having somebody criticise your child. Like you will immediately become very touchy about this, and a lot of people have quite an angry reaction if something they've written is is reviewed badly or, or criticised, even in a very informal environment. So I think the first step is to make sure that in your head you know that the book is not you. It's a separate entity, and you. You can read it without knowing anything about the writer and that's completely fine. Just view it as something else that you happen to be involved with. That really helps. But also don't try and act on every piece of feedback you get because readers are just as temperamental as writers. They might give a terrible review because they were sick that week and their their mother is being too demanding and they're just in a bad mood and they're not really in the mood to read at all. But they wrote a review because Amazon wanted them to. Like, It's just... You have to be just Take it with a pinch of salt. yeah I find in, in actual workshop environments, when everybody says the same thing, that's when you change it. When everybody criticises what you've written for various different reasons, don't listen to any single one of those reasons. But go through the manuscript and look for what it is that's wrong. It will be something nebulous and weird. Yeah. It's not straightforward. So just know how to use feedback rather than just taking it entirely at face value. Yeah, well
0: let's talk about some of the projects that
1: you may have in the pipeline. Also, <laughs> Natasha,
0: what are you working on currently?
1: Okay, what I'm working on currently is, um, is a ghost story set in Egypt in the 1950s. So I found out recently, because I'm an ignorant person and I've lived 30 years of my life without knowing this, that every April in Egypt, there's this thing, there's a season, a dusty season, called the Kamasin, which means the 50 day wind i know isn't that yeah. amazing and romantic and cool i mean probably less to live in i think you just get really sick and tired of it but the Camasine is this extraordinary weather phenomenon where in an ordinary quite mild april day suddenly the temperature will rocket from about 21 degrees to 40 degrees in about an hour and this incredibly powerful wind full of dust will come powering through it just kind of turns to everything orange and i loved that idea and I thought, what if there's something that comes in with the dust?
0: Ooh, wibbly fingers. Can you finish the book now? <laughs> so
1: we can... Try. I will absolutely try. Um the other thing that I've I'm quite excited about that I've actually just delivered to my editor, um, is a book about it's an alternate history about what might have happened if England had lost the Napoleonic Wars. So these were, I feel like I've read a lot of novels about like, oh, what would have happened if we'd lost World War II? Oh, Hitler is bad. But the Napoleonic Wars were huge and important. And a lot of us know the name of the Battle of Trafalgar, but we don't know why it was big. It was big because this was the battle that stopped England being invaded by France. What if we lost? I love that idea
0: wow i think i learned more from you in the last 20 minutes than oh my I have. god it's <laughs> so fascinating from egypt to the war and everything uh natasha remind our listeners once again have you got a, any social media or website where people can follow you and your work as well
1: yes absolutely you can follow me on twitter um and my hashtag is at natasha underscore pulley um i don't have facebook because i quit twi- quit because i just found it
0: too traumatic in my soul
1: but um I also have a website, which is just www.natashapulley.co.uk.
0: Natasha, what a pleasure to meet you and to speak to you this afternoon. And for our listeners, you can see Natasha in action this evening at the book fair. You can go along to her public talk, which is happening at seven o'clock. And also she'll have a book signing session at 8.15 today, followed by a creative writing sharing session at the main library at the University of Hong Kong tomorrow on Thursday, the 18th of July, which starts at 6.30. Natasha is here as part of the British Council's uh, invitation in which the British Council will also have a booth at the Book Fair all the way from uh, today all the way through to the 23rd of July. Natasha, pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
1: Thank you.